Live from the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island, it's Cofield and Company. No, no, no! You know they're going to end it on a three, right? From half court, man. Harden for three. All right, what's Lillard thinking about here? James. James. He's thinking about James. The three for Lillard, and it's all over. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on a Monday. It's one of our puck parties here at the TI Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. We got a 5 o'clock start with VGK. We'll get into the hockey scene in a little bit. Busy weekend. You heard some NBA All-Star game. Lots on UNLV running Rebel basketball. We got a couple of, uh, well, multiple conference tournaments going down later in the week. And uh, actually tonight, women's included. But Vegas, a very busy spot. So Adam Candy's with us. Candy, that's a good sign, right? Very good sign that, uh, hey, this looked nearly impossible about two months ago, and we actually have college basketball teams on the ground in our fair city. And apparently safely bubbled. There haven't been any issues. We haven't heard about teams having to cancel games because of COVID or for any other reasons, and everything has gone off smoothly thus far. Nice. Very nice. Uh, I will ask you, do you feel safe? Maybe it's none of my business. I wonder how many people on the show have been vaccinated. We do know that one Adam Hill has been vaccinated. He admitted that. He came clean. I think it was on one of the podcasts. We can all get it now. We can all get it now. It may make people angry, but it's part of the frontline media. We're all eligible. Um, So no one else has to admit whether they've had it or not. I'm not sure that that's a requirement. I saw that LeBron said he's iffy on getting vaccinated and wants to keep his decision private. Do you have an issue with that? I mean, he's a leader of men, an icon. Maybe LeBron getting the vaccination would help others go out and get vaccinated. Thoughts? There's one thing that we cannot drag LeBron James for, and it's stepping out and being forward on social issues. Like, LeBron has been as active as any athlete uh, you know, short of Jim Brown when it comes to, you know, having a voice when it comes to social issues. And so if LeBron wants to keep that private, I don't have any problem with that. This is a guy who during the last election in, launched an entire initiative to try to get more people to vote, try to get more people involved in the political process. He's interested in building community. And if he wants to keep that to himself, then I totally understand why that's a personal choice for him. Well, I hope he's not cowering to the soccer dude who was calling him out last week saying stick to sports. Ibrahimovic? Is that how you say his last name? I usually uh, just call him Big Z. Okay, Big Z. His light hand, yeah. Do you, think, do you think he's now backing down from anything non-sports? He's, the guy told him, stick to sports. I don't think that's exactly where LeBron's going with this. He, uh, even last week, was out there talking about some other issues. So, yeah, I think that when it comes to personal medical situations, it's a sensitive thing. And it's not just for LeBron. I mean, there's a CNN article from last month talking about how less than half of black Americans feel comfortable with the idea of getting the vaccine, that 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 less than 50 percent are planning to get the vaccine and even smaller percentage than that are planning to get it quickly. So there's some 
there's some long-standing mistrusts uh, when it comes to the medical community. I'm not saying that's why LeBron is making the decision that he is, but there certainly are a lot of people out there who have hesitance. Ari, have you gotten the vaccine yet? Ari's back in our Finley Toyota studios wondering if he has gotten his first shot yet. He is eligible. I got that email last week. What's the deal? I have not yet. I'm working on it. Well, how irresponsible is that? Do you want this thing to end or not, eternal lockdowner? I'm taking care of it. Why is it taking so long? Uh, it's. I've had the email like two and a half days, but mm, got a lot could. on my plate. See, as you know, as you uh, make fun of me as we get ready for the show. You, uh, you could have gotten it done over the weekend. What were you doing all weekend? That's right. I had other things that I had to take care of, including uh, actually, like I have to actually schedule the appointment. So mm. that will be on my plate tonight after this glorious show. All right. Uh, you said over the LeBron story and you called him a big dummy. Yeah, it seems like there are different rules for you and LeBron. <laughs> there are. What's there going are on absolutely here? different mm. rules for the two of us, yes. Uh, I just I thought that the idea of him simply saying that he's not comfortable uh, offering like what he's going to do, that pretty much sends the message to me already that, that he's reluctant and that, unfortunately, that translates to, to people. I mean, yeah, he's iconic. He's uh, you know, part of a lot of people listen to what he says. Uh, and, and rightfully so, but I just think he was not smart on this one. Not not to choose not to take the vaccine or not. I'm just saying to make that part of it, I feel like he should have just been like a, non, a non-issue, a non right? Just leave it alone. I just I feel like there's a double standard here. What about you, Candy? Well, here's the thing. Uh, both LeBron and Ari have platforms, right? They they're they're <laughs> people that people listen to. Ari is okay. a sports, the, like the, one of the number one sports voices, certainly from this show, in all of Las Vegas. That's what I'm saying. And and people would listen if he said, absolutely, I went out there, I got my vaccine, and you in the Las Vegas sports community should do the same. Hmm. He seems unwilling to do that. What could be more important than getting the shot? If, if I knew that uh, my voice carried such, uh, such importance. You didn't have to work today. You're right. You're right. Everything would have gotten done. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't trust me. I, I know trust me. Trust get, me. It would have. Yeah, I, I know you're trying to get. A rise <laughs> I'd be back there. Me. I'd be back there running the board. Trust me. <laughs> yes, I'm aware. Uh, no, I'm, you I'm, should. You should get it though. Oh, I am. No, I, I literally. I like. I just had this conversation with my mom the other. Day. It's not that I'm not. It's not that it's not top priority. I literally just have a couple hurdles to take care of. There are actually some other medical things that are. Oh, I, believe God. it or not, that oh, are more no. pressing. That are more pressing right now in the. Oh boy. Immediate. Time, so all right, we'll do tell. Go ahead. We'll we'll clear out about fifteen minutes. You talk about your medical issues. I, I have a prescription that that's not. It's taking oh forever. It's well, I was weeks. I was actually kidding. Our we awesome need... new insurance we... seems to have oh, some trouble. So ah, I was go. I was kidding. You didn't need to talk I know. about it. Maybe regret it. it for the next time. <laughs> Candy just laying back, like, okay, where are we going with this? Just with a Cheshire cat smile. <laughs> Remember <laughs> that next time you want me to crack the mic. <laughs> Listen, guys, when I worked in politics a long time ago, a long, long time ago, we always said when someone is out there making their own bed, you don't need to help them. Like, you just go ahead and stay right out of the way. So, Ari, you do it. You do you. You do you with your prescriptions, your insurance, and your and your discussions and, and your vax or non-vax. Thank you. Trending it to, as I said, college basketball is in town got conference tournaments we've got uh i think the one that a lot of people are interested in i'm not sure it's the one people are most interested in maybe it's pac 12 but mountain west conference is over at the thomas and mac we got the ladies playing uh starting what yesterday unlv women's are going to be playing a little later this afternoon we'll get into that in just a bit but for the rebels 
Adam, you feeling anything going into this? This is, uh, I don't know, man, it's weird in terms of the vibe going in. It was not a strong close to the season. They had the two added games. You knew both would be kind of difficult. They played San Diego State well for 17 minutes, then fought hard in the second half, but they lost that one. Then they go on the road against a team that's behind them, and they just get boat raced in the second half. That's the part that's really concerning to me, Steve. They give up 50% from three-point range, 1.18 points per possession. Uh, they let a Wyoming team that has been middling at best run them up and down the court. And, look, it's one thing for you and me to say, why, sh- why are they playing these games like the conference should step in and say this is not in the greater interest of the Mountain West to play these makeup games? But once the game's on the schedule, it's on the players to go play it. And UNLV just did not look right at any point during the game, save for maybe the stretch where we saw like Mbake Zhang going Hakeem Olajuwon for about four straight possessions. I mean, we're talking about a young team in Wyoming that was behind them in the standings built mostly around their freshmen. Yikes. Not feeling a whole lot of momentum going into this no, Mountain it, West it, Conference it, tournament. And now they now they have to play in the 7-10 game that will be in the afternoon. That's a 1 o'clock start on Wednesday. They're taking on Air Force, and they beat Air Force, but I can tell you from sitting there watching the games, they were – they were not easy games. I mean, they, in both games, the Rebels needed to run early in the second half to kind of stretch out the lead, and uh, they didn't you know, get out of the gym winning by 21. It's not a team that you can do that against if you're UNLV. They just don't have the style to do it. And, look, they have some history when it comes to the tournament these teams do. It was not that long ago that UNLV and Air Force were playing multiple overtimes in the Mountain West tournament. And when it comes to this particular season, we've seen Air Force at least put 20 to 25 competent minutes together in multiple games. And if they do that in this game and UNLV shows up with the kind of effort it did in Wyoming, then there's going to be a lot greater fight on their hands than I think they ever expected. Yeah, 10-point win in the first end of the double dip against Air Force, 5-point win in the second part of the doubleheader, the two-game series. So they got a lot on their plate this week, and maybe they can make a run. I think that's what a lot of people were hoping for, but the end of the season kind of sputtered badly. We'll come back, we'll address the Rebels a little more, and also the other big story that's hanging over the Rebels' head potentially by, what, Thursday or Friday is what's going on at Iowa State. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. You're listening to Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. We were just talking about uh, tourney week kicking off. It starts, well, actually started last week with the ladies from the Pac-12, but uh, Lady Rebels... Adam Candy. By the way, do you miss being on the call? Figures you leave, and all of a sudden, uh, now they've had this unreal season, great run in the Mountain West Conference with the new coach. Of course I miss being there, but I know that it's in very good hands with my buddy Wyatt Tomchek on the call on the radio side and uh, keeping really the legacy of our, our good old friend Bob Bloom alive. But sure, I would love to love to be over there. What a season getting the number two seed in the tournament. So what do you make of the job she's done? Lindy LaRock has been outstanding, and obviously the coaches in the conference agree. She was voted Mountain West Coach of the Year. Not only had the Coach of the Year, had the Freshman of the Year, had the Defensive Player of the Year on that roster. And look, 
it shouldn't come as any surprise. She was an outstanding player. Her dad, Al, was a coach at Durango High School for the longest of times, a good friend of mine over the years, even spent a year at Northern Arizona coaching uh, with Jack Murphy. She's been someone who I think has injected a lot of energy into that program, and it certainly seems like the sky's the limit, not just for her, but for the Lady Rebs as they go into this tournament as one of the favorites. be freaking awesome if they could get the automatic bid be outstanding it really would I mean and look this is a team that went 9-0 on the road this year like they certainly have the ability to win tough games against tough opponents so there's a lot we can get into and I'm sure we'll do it later in the week a lot we can get into with the Rebels and why they've fallen short this season we were just saying the Wyoming game of the weekend was uh, a big disappointment it wasn't wasn't unexpected for me that they might lose the game but it was being down 21 with 10 minutes left against Wyoming team that is still a developmental squad but you know, can score, and the problem, Candy, is we're, what, 24 games in now, 25 games in, and a lot of the same problems that pop their head up pretty much from the get-go in the season, again, throughout the season, defending the the, uh, the three-point line was a big problem, and the other one is foul trouble uh, because of poor positioning at times on defense, and they had multiple guys in foul trouble, and then they fouled out, and you can't allow 10 of 20 from deep. You mentioned the three-point shooting, Steve, and, and we got some context to this. The Rebels rank 338th in the nation in three-point field goal percentage. Oh, boy. They give up 39% from the three-point line. So you can probably do the math out there as to how many teams there are in Division One. There aren't many more than 338. So that is a big problem for the Rebels. And the other one, and you and I have talked about this one, too, they don't get to the free-throw line at the offensive end. They just set a program low for their free-throw rate this year. And that's why when you go back and look at this entire season for UNLV, you see that what's the one win you feel like they can hang their hat on? It's the game against Utah State on January 25th that they won by three, and it's the one on this entire schedule that makes you feel like there's a little bit of hope going into this week that they've shown they can beat one of the top teams in the conference. You know, and the crazy thing is the uh, the Aggies were terrible uh, in the first half and really not much better throughout the game from the three-point line, but they did have open looks. Because I remember, I remember sitting there watching, I'm like, man, they're just missing because they had, they had open looks in that game. And now the other storyline, Candy, that we got to watch, especially towards the end of the week, is keep an eye on Iowa State in the Big 12. I mean, I... With we, we talked we started talking about this about two and a half weeks ago, and at the time the Iowa State situation was really bad. It just got it got worse. I mean, it didn't. They, there's no signs of Steve Prom coming out of this, and maybe he'll survive because of you know all the complications with COVID. But he's probably going to go bye bye, and then that is a premium job. Jeff Borzello from ESPN had Otzelberger, you know, on a short list. It doesn't mean that's official, but it, once again, Otz is mentioned for a power five job, that's going to be a story for at least a couple of days after the tournament is over, unless the Rebels make the miracle run and win the conference tournament and go to the NCAAs. Iowa State last won a game on December 20th. They beat Jackson State. Their two wins this year against Arkansas Pine Bluff and Jackson State. They have been one of the worst teams in college basketball, and because of T.J. Otzberger's history on the bench at Iowa State, it's impossible to ignore and right now, when, when you see where UNLV is and you look at Iowa State and the resources of a Big 12 athletic department, what's the easier turnaround job? Because at the end of last season, 
with the momentum that UNLV went into the tournament with, you started to feel like, okay, this is something that can get done. I thought he did a great job the first half of the season keeping this team together. And then after the Wyoming game, we finally started to hear what I had been so excited not to hear throughout the year, which were the excuses about the COVID year, which were, well, we lost our summer, we lost our conditioning, we lost our this, we lost our that. Yet you and everybody else, everybody else in the country went through the same situation, but your team is the one that has fallen to shreds here over the last month or so, and a big part of it goes back to something you and I talked about, Steve. They didn't bring in a backup point guard to be behind Marvin Coleman, and we have seen the effects of that consistently throughout Mountain West play. Tourney Week is here. More on the Rebels throughout the show. We flip the page, though. Look back at this past weekend. UFC was in town. A lot of storylines coming out of UFC 259. We're going to talk to R.J. Clifford, our buddy who covers mixed martial arts for Sirius XM. Visit Cofield's Corner on LVSportsNetwork.com for access to the latest podcasts and best interviews. Hang in at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. It's Cofield and Company. Back here on ESPN Las Vegas, it's a Monday, and we get a chance to uh, recap the uh, big UFC pay-per-view from the weekend. Talk a little Raiders with our buddy in Southern California in Long Beach. Very dangerous place. You can see, very dangerous place. The man, the myth, the legend, R.J. Clifford. I'm safe in Long Beach. Yeah, I don't. I don't live in the part of Long Beach that uh, Snoop Dogg rapped about. So it's generally, generally pretty safe. And I got two uh, two giant pit bulls. If otherwise, good deal. Oh, is that right? <laughs> there you go. So then you kind of do play to a Long Beach reputation. Uh, let's talk yeah. UFC. Let's get into the main event. Uh, this was the jumping off point for superstar Adesanya, and it didn't quite work out, did it? No, uh, Jan Blachowicz has been um, just drastically underrated. He's been an underdog in eight of his last 11 fights, and during that time, he became light heavyweight champion. Uh, I think he's won eight of the last nine, I believe, that he's been in. So he's just been drastically underrated by the betting public, by the general public, and and by his opponents. And it's just because he's got kind of a an awkwardish style, but it works. And when you're someone who wants to fight as pretty as Israel Adesanya, kind of a, a grimy, both striking and wrestling style has kind of been that kryptonite traditionally, and it certainly was Saturday night. So how did uh, Blahovich actually win this fight and win it so easily via decision? Yeah, so um, and, and um, Blahovich took over in the wrestling, you know, the last two rounds. He took down Adesanya early in rounds four and rounds five and even got a 10-8 round um, during that time. But uh Two judges saw him winning the first two rounds that were all striking. Rounds one through three were all striking, and Blahovich won. And um, that was, you know, the the analyst that thought you know Jan Blahovich could get the win would think, all right, he's got to make it grimy. He's got a you know, clinch game against the cage, takedown, do whatever it takes to not be engaged in kind of a fun, flashy striking matchup with Israel Adesanya because that's been Adesanya's. Uh, best weapon. He comes from a kickboxing background. He's been knocking people out left and right. But whether it was st- striking, whether it was on the ground, whether it was in the clinch, um, Jan Blahovich won, you know, three to four rounds, no matter where the fight went. So it was, uh, he cruised to a semi-easy decision, which I think shocked a lot of people. Is it true that he got up and told Dana White, you don't believe in me, do you? That's true. That's true. But I think that's kind of been the case with every single person. So, um, like I said, that he's been a bit betting underdog. Yeah. Uh, no one's really given him his love. And he's, I mean, and it's, it's been 
and it's not like there wasn't evidence to kind of underestimate Jan Blachowicz at times. I mean, he started out his career three and two. Uh, he got knocked out by Thiago Santos in 2019, which wasn't that long ago. But since then, he's reeled off five straight wins, three knockouts during that time. Um, and over big names, Luke Rockhold, uh, split decision over Jacare. And then he knocked out Dominic Reyes for the vacant lightweight title since John Jones is going to go up to heavyweight. And then he made his first title defense against an undefeated pound for pound great in uh, middleweight champion Israel Asanya. So again, it's the style looks weird and awkward. And so people underestimate him, but the results speak for themselves. So he gets a big win. He gets a big win against a big name. I'm not sure though, that this launches him into something that's really promotable. How do they promote him? And then I mean, you know, I'm going to diss him here. Like who's on the horizon who potentially could beat him a younger guy that actually is promotable. Uh, not a lot of people as of right now. Um, Glover Teixeira is the number one contender, which fan favorite, right? Oh like people, you know, fans like him, but you're not going to turn into Conor McGregor beating the Glover Teixeira's of the world. Um, and that'll be a competitive fight. Glover's obviously a savvy veteran, incredible ground game, hits hard as well. Um, it, you know, I, I don't think Glover will be a favorite in that fight. I don't think that, that the streak for Jan Blachowicz is going to continue um, being the underdog. I think people will finally realize, like, all right, those – Let's kind of make him even money, at least now. <laughs> but as far as, yeah, as far as promotionally wise, I mean, unless John Jones comes back down to 205 to try to claim back, um, claim his title back, you're, you're kind of right. It's been, you know, the, 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 the cupboards aren't bare when it comes to intriguing stylistic matchups. But as far as big promotional fights for Jan, uh, he's, he's going to have to do it on his own because he's not going to be matchup specific. So what do you see for 205, like the next three years? It seems to have turned into one of those weight classes where – Maybe you have uh, some talented heavies who don't want to come down from 230, 225, and then there's not a whole lot on the horizon. It's weird. This used to be the glamour division that really built the promotion. Yeah, and it goes through its its phases, right? I mean, it, it was the glamour division not that long ago when it was the John Jones with, you know, Daniel Cormier rivalries and, you know, Rumble Johnson was in there. And, like, there was uh, uh, Alexander Gustafson. I mean, these are all legit dudes. Now, yeah. DC's retired. Gustafson's retired. Anthony Johnson is in Bellator. So, um, normally there would be, like, another – you know, run of young guys coming in to fill in for him, but it's still kind of older guys. Glover Teixeira, Tiago Santos, um, Alexander Rakic had a win over Tiago Santos um, on that same pay-per-view. So he's kind of in that number one contest spot. He's a young guy that can add some fresh blood. Um, but other than that, it's, you know, Anthony Smith, who's again, been around, had a title shot already. It's not a lot of, a lot of young guys outside of Rakic. And he already beat Dominic Reyes was supposed to be the next young guy. And if you guy that was supposed to be champion in, in uh, after John Jones, but Jan Blachowicz knocked him out. So it's kind of like, all right, do we circle that back? It's, again, challenges for him, but not anything that, you know, blows your promotional skirt up. He does fight talk for SiriusXM. It's RJ Clifford. He's up with Cofield and Company going over UFC 259, which was uh, in town over the weekend. Last thing about this mix until we get to Adesanya, uh, you mentioned John Jones. All right, what's the future hold for John Jones? I know he's doing a lot of talking on Twitter, as he always does. I think he's used this time to build his body up, right? It's, you know, at 6'4", he probably maxed out at about 225 pounds in the past. He's going to fight heavyweight. How Have we seen pictures? How big is he now? His social media is just all him doing squats and deadlifts. I mean, he's definitely <laughs> just he's trying. Other than, you know, there's pictures of him shooting guns and lifting weights. He's just an all-American guy, right? Sure, yeah. So he's, uh, so yeah, he's bulking up, and he definitely looks it. 
Um, he looks like he's in the 240, 245 range. So Stipe Miocic is going to rematch Francis Ngannou at the end of the month in Las Vegas on pay-per-view at UFC 260 in the main event. Um, it's all but been said by Dana White that John Jones is going to get the winner. Um, so he'll get his heavyweight title shot, which I, I considering how much he's done at 205, him cutting the line and, and cutting in front of someone like uh, – you know, like Derek Lewis or Curtis Blades or Volkov. Like, I don't have a problem with it considering how much John Jones has done. Lord knows if Stipe is able to beat Francis Ngannou again, how much that matchup would do for both guys. Uh, so, yeah, don't he's been he's he's been loud on Twitter, but quiet everywhere else. So we're all kind of anxious to see him back in the cage again. What do you think about future matchups against one of those guys? I think he absolutely smokes Ngannou. Uh, Miasic will be a tougher fight, but I think he's a favorite in both. It's hard to say. Um, the John Jones that like we all kind of fell in love with doing spinning back elbows and jumping spinning back kicks, that's kind of disappeared. And he's turned into a very, very defensively sound fighter. Um, you know, his last two title defenses um, against uh, Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes, like I thought he lost both of those. He won the decision. The judges gave him the decision, but I thought he lost both those fights. Um, and he fought Tiago Santos, who was fighting on a, on a blown out knee, was clearly limping. And still, I thought... Santos won that fight, so um, we'll we'll see. My uh, my co-host uh, Anthony Smith at SiriusXM who fought John Jones is like John Jones's giant asset is that he's a huge light heavyweight, six foot four, long frame. He controls the distance. Can he do that with dudes that can bully him? Was against someone like Stipe. Um, that's to be found out, and that's what's so intriguing about him moving up to two sixty five. Adesanya now, now what? Yep. Now what? He goes back to 185, and I thought win or lose, he would go back to 185 for all the things that we mentioned. There's not a lot of sexy matchups at 205, which is crazy to say, considering it was, like you said, the the weight class that brought us Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, all that. Um, so he'll go back to, to 185. There's there's matchups for him. Um, he only had one title defense, so it's not like he he moved up in weight because he was you know he's done everything there is to do, like Amanda Nunes. He went up in weight because it was interesting for him and there's rematches i think that are intriguing i mean robert whitaker obviously coming from australia got that oceana rivalry which is good um jared cannonier still hasn't had a shot yet um the marvin vittori rematch marvin vittori fought him about four or five fights ago and gave him the toughest fight of his ufc career up until saturday night in a split decision so there's there's matchups for him and especially kind of you know being humbled a little bit by jan blahovich obviously it's 20 pounds up and everyone can say well that's why there's weight classes that's why he lost you know, it's enough for all these new matchups to feel fresh again and just say, like, all right, Izzy's not completely undefended, uh, you know, unbeatable. The uh, big female fight with Amanda Nunes, what happened? Amanda Nunes had her biannual feeding, and in this case, it was Megan Anderson. I mean, she's just so good. Uh, she's she's incredible. Um, I, 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 I posted on Twitter today how when – when Amanda Nunes went up, and she was a 135-pound champ, beat everyone that there was at 135. Holly Holm, Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, like, just destroyed everybody. She went up a weight class and fought Chris Cyborg, who at the time had lost in 13 years. The pound-for-pound pound best female fighter on planet Earth, the best fighter of all time in the women's divisions, and knocked her out in under a minute. And that goes to show you... What can happen for a fighter if you're daring to be great? Because she went up and knocked out Chris Cyborg, she's now a two-division champion, and now she gets to be a minus-1,000 favorite against the Megan Andersons of the world, get pay-per-view points on an Israel Adesanya pay-per-view, and get out of there in a, uh, you know, a first-round submission. So um, she's going to continue to destroy every single person she fights, uh, unless it's a rematch with Chris Cyborg, who's now in Bellator, so it's essentially impossible at this point. It's kind of... 
who's next for Amanda rematches. Uh, Juliana Pena would be a fresh matchup for, uh, for Amanda Nunes, but she'll, you know, it's Amanda Nunes. She'll be a five to one favorite against just about everybody. Why do they let Cyborg walk? Why not bleed the turnip dry on both sides? Have him fight a second time and maybe a third. It's been this has been the case multiple times, right? Like you finally give Chris Cyborg a rival, you finally give Amanda Nunez a rival. Yeah, Nunez knocked her out in one round, but you know they fought a hundred times. It's not going to be a first round knockout every time. Let him let him try it again. The UFC has given rematches to champions multiple, like dominant champions. They give they give him immediate ram, immediate rematches all the time. They didn't with Cyborg, and it's a shame. It's the same thing that happened at 125 when they let Demetrius Johnson go to one championship because Demetrius Johnson was the most dominant champion in UFC history. He finally loses to somebody, Henry Cejudo. So now they're one and one against each other. Dude, that trilogy would have been the biggest flyweight fight in UFC history. And then Demetrius Johnson bounces and Henry Cejudo goes up a weight and then retires. So it's like you finally build these big matchups for your dominant champions. And sometimes they let them just skirt away. Got to tell you, Dana White talked about the uh, boxing blueprint and that he tore it up and ignored everything that boxing used to do. Not anymore. That's a prime example. That, to me, is just silly. I'm not in your realm anymore, so I don't talk MMA a whole lot and every day. And So I really like the sport. But one of the things that drives me freaking nuts, RJ, and we're talking RJ Clifford, is the GOAT conversation. We got to stop it with women's fighting. Really, we have to stop it with men's fighting. The sport literally needs to be like 40 or 50 years into its existence at the high level. But the GOAT thing is so stupid. And then yesterday I saw people rolling out, uh, Nunez is the GOAT on the women's side, and maybe she should be mentioned on the men's side. How about there's no GOAT? There's no GOAT, all right? 2040 <laughs> is my approval on GOAT conversation, RJ, is 2040. That'll be about 50 years into the sport. Cut it out now because the evolution is too quick. And frankly, you know this, on the female fighting side, there are tens of thousands of women trying MMA around the world as opposed to hundreds of thousands of men. The, the women's pool is just not that big yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle December 31st, 2039 as the last <laughs> night. We're not allowed to talk about GOAT conversations yes. in MMA. You're, but, but I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, MMA has an opposite problem of boxing. In boxing, the old timers and old school media, like they never give the new guys any right, credit. Right, like, right, right. Oh, he get, he get folded up and used his pocket change back in like the 40s and 50s. Oh, he'd never be able to do a 15 rounder like these guys today. I have no idea. It's the opposite problem in MMA, where whoever just won the title Saturday night is the new best fighter in the world, the new greatest of all time. Um, Amanda Nunes, Chris Cyborg. I, I, I'm in the minority that thinks Chris Cyborg is still the greatest female fighter of all time because she went 13 years undefeated. She loses one, and now it's like, all right, the next one's the next greatest. You know, it's it's part of it has to do – part of the blame goes to Dana White because that's his job is to be a promoter, and whoever his champion is – this is the best fighter of all time. This is the greatest fighter. Of all, the next fight's the greatest fight of all time, which I don't blame him. It's his job. He's, as a promoter, that's what he's supposed to do. But the general fan base and media seem to kind of get swallowed up in it as well. And um, it'd be nice if there was a middle ground between MMA and boxing, right? Like yep. instead of like holding the old guys in canon and they'll never be touched or the, the next guy that wins is always the best of all time. Give me a middle ground, please. Oh. Uh- one more fight to mention, and then we, we have to get to a couple of the fight angles, and we'll get to some Raider stuff here with RJ Clifford with SiriusXM. Uh, weird ending to the uh, Aljamain Sterling uh, Yan fight. What happened? So in mixed martial arts, you're not allowed to knee strike an opponent in the head when they're considered a down fighter. When one knee or anything more is on the ground, you're considered a down fighter, and you can only punch in the head. You can't kick, soccer stomp, knee. And yet, that's what exactly what Petrion did. And it wasn't 
close, wasn't controversial. It was a blatant knee to a downed opponent in round four in a fight that the current Bantamweight champion, Petrion, was winning. Um, Sterling looked good early, but Petrion started taking over late. I thought the fight was going to end that round with Petrion getting a knockout or maybe later in the fifth round. Um, the, the fight was really starting to go that way, and he had just the worst brain fart ever. Throws the illegal strike. Aljamain can't continue. Uh, so he's decued, and Aljamain Sterling is the new bantamweight champion by disqualification, as he should. That is how it should be. In mixed martial arts, it is so rare for referees to really abide by the rules. Like, we have rules, no kicks to the groin, no eye pokes. And refs will let guys do it one, two, three, four times with stern warnings. Like, they'll shake their finger at him and say, no, no, no. But taking a point away seems to be like uh, like pulling teeth. Um, Mark Smith, the referee, did the right thing here. Um disqualification blatant you know illegal strike and he's out if Petrion had made a critical error like not keeping his hands up and got knocked out or you know didn't keep his chin down and got choked out to me that's the same thing a critical error like that should make you lose your title should make you lose that fight because you did something so blatantly incorrect um like i said if you would have gotten knocked out from a mistake no one would say controversy there shouldn't be controversy here that's and they'll do the rematch and we'll find out who, who the better fighter is later RJ, you fought, so you know what it's like to step into the cage. What do you think of other fighters then going after Sterling and basically saying he's a quitter and a pansy? Whether, whether Aljamain Sterling milked it or not, to me, is irrelevant. Because if he if he's even 1% pulled back, if he's even 1% you know, extra deterrent on him, if he's, if he's reduced the tiniest little bit from an illegal strike, it's not his job to protect Petrion. It's not his job to say, well, let's make sure it's fair to, to Jan. It's like, no, I, I can't. I am diminished as a fighter from something you did illegally. I don't have to fight anymore. So, um, and, and we've seen this before mixed martial arts. And I'll be the first person to say, again, I, I bring in my co-host, Anthony Smith. He, he had an illegal knee strike against John Jones in a title fight. If Anthony simply said, I can't continue, it would have been the truth. And he would have been light heavyweight champion. And the pay-per-view points that come with it, the money that comes with it, all the rewards that come with it. And he said, no, I want to keep fighting. So props to him. Um, you know, it's fair. It's fair to say, hey, Aljo. Um, you know, you weren't as tough as Anthony Smith, but it's also unfair because that knee looked way worse than the one Anthony Smith took. And again, if he if he was concussed and he wasn't if he was seeing three Petrions out there, it's not his fault. And so he shouldn't be punished for it. One of the dudes who came out of the woodwork was TJ Dillashaw, who uh, went after Sterling and then also oh, the irony. Then he also said, uh, well, Jan, you're a cheater now, too, to which people are like a legal knee in a, in, in a fight, you know, brain fart PEDs, bro. That You're not same level cheater. Cut it out. Yeah, TJ Dillashaw is just coming off a two-year suspension for um, failing a PED test with multiple uh, substances in his system. <laughs> he, that suspension's now over, yeah. and he wants to get in the 135-pound title mix. So he's just trying to stir the pot, um, you know, and, and especially something like, I'm one of the guys, you know me, Cofield. You, you, you test positive for PEDs, you do your suspension, you move on. You, you know, you paid your debt to society, so to speak. It cost him a ton of money, uh, cost him a ton of time in his prime. He's paid his dues, but... Have a little self-awareness, bro. Like, read the room. Like, you calling somebody a cheater? Like, you haven't even fought after your suspension yet. <laughs> RJ's going to stick with us. On the way back, we're going to get into the Raiders. He does a Raiders podcast, longtime Raiders fan, Raiders follower. And we'll ask him or we'll find out, is he a hater or is he a Derek Carr stan? More of Cofield and Company is on the way. Now back to Cofield and Company, live at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. 
RJ Clifford's with us, Sirius XM, as we just wrapped up. USC 259, that's his expertise. I think you go even further back with the Raiders, and you've got your Autumn Windbags podcast that you do weekly on the Raiders. My lord, RJ, my lord. You know my experience here in Vegas. You know, we didn't have a professional team until the Knights came along. We didn't have an NFL team until the Raiders came along. The NFL is the sport that gives every freaking day, and the Raiders, because of the polarizing – Aspects of Derek Carr on the field, off the field. The Raiders have given us so much to discuss now that we've had Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson rumored to be potentially on the trade block or they may want out. Where are you on the seemingly daily fight over Derek Carr stays or goes? Derek Carr is the only stable element to this Raiders franchise the last <laughs> like half decade. Seriously. Yeah, like who, who has been Rodney Hudson, the center, Derek Carr and like our kicker. Like the only people you can routinely and consistently count on for the last like long time. Like obviously Derek Waller's great, Josh Jacobs are great, but these are relatively new players. Like if you go through you know the last you know five to seven years or so, Derek Carr's been the anchor. He's been the, the consistent guy. And with how terrible the Raiders have been drafting in free agency lately, when you've got someone working, when you've got something that's working correctly, don't get rid of it. Like Corey Littleton, Nick Kwiatkowski, like uh, defensive line we've picked up, um, you know, obviously Antonio Brown, like all these free agents we brought in haven't panned out. The last few like first rounders we've picked up haven't panned out great so far. So it's like you finally you've got a quarterback who was a pro bowler. He was on the NFL MVP, like shortlist in 2016 before he broke his leg, like top 10 quarterback by every possible metric. And you're like, all right, that's the problem. Not our defense that was ranked 31st in the league. No, no, it's Derek Carr the problem. Get out of here. So you wouldn't consider trading Carr and a boatload of picks for Wilson or Watson? No, not at all. Not with how many holes we have in our defense. I mean, look, if it was just like, we'll just swap you Deshaun Watson for for Derek Carr, okay, whatever. But like sending over three first-round draft picks that we desperately need on our defense, no. I mean, look, our offense was the ninth-best offense in 2020, last season. We pick up Deshaun Watson, we become what? The sixth best offense? Like, is that going to get us over the hump? Is that going to get us deep into the playoffs? No, it's our atrocious defense. Our offense is fine. It's our atrocious defense is that the problem. And to bring in a brand new quarterback and a system with John Gruden that's notoriously complicated, it took, it took D- Derek Carr three years to like really get a grasp of it and you know really have a lot of success with it. Why? Why mess with the one part of the Raiders that's working? Even a running game regressed this year. Like stick stick with the one thing that's working on this team, please. <laughs> well, the run game regressed for a reason. The offensive line was beat to hell. The offensive line, by PFF standards, was twenty fourth. And it looks like they're making moves on the offensive line. So Gabe Jackson, one of those reliable guys that you talked about, there aren't many that go back, you know, six and seven years with the Raiders. He's gone bye bye. Uh, yep. They clearly have. Trent Brown on the block. We'll see if anyone wants to trade for him. And now it looks like Richie Incognito uh, is going to be cut. They could renegotiate with him. But all of a sudden, this line that was super reliable a couple of years ago is very much in flux. It is. But I, I understand what the Raiders are doing. Like, look, the, the O-line was the most expensive offensive line in football last season, right? Which I, I don't have a problem investing that kind of money in the O-line. No, no problem at all, especially with Derek Carr's fumble problems. But... Uh, Trent Brown could only get in for like half the game since he's been signed. Richie Incognito only played two games. Um, look, I, it, 
if we if we get rid of you know Gabe Jack, I, I think Richie Incognito is going to come back. I think he's going to renegotiate and stay a Raider. He has a house in Vegas. He moved here before he became a Raider. Had plans of retiring here. I don't think he's going to go anywhere. I could be wrong, but that's just my best guess. Um, Trent Brown, for as good as he is, uh, is he fourteen million dollars good? I don't think so. Not with all the whole like that is like an all pro free safety that we desperately need, um, and we can pick up you know, another right tackle somewhere. So I don't have any problem with the Raiders trying to save money on their line because it went from the most expensive line in football that played above average to hopefully an average spending offensive line that's going to play above average. So look, you're getting rid of giant pieces, but we desperately need that cap room with how bad the defense is. The uh, the question we're asking you today about the Raiders on Cofield and company revolves around Nelson Aguilar and Nicholas Morrow. If you were those guys and you got a competitive offer, from a team that's on the you know the cusp of the playoffs eight and eight nine and seven seven and nine or a little bit better, would you return to the Raiders? Well, we'll start with Nicholas Morrow because I think he's been the most undervalued linebacker. Like he played great this season for the Raiders, and yet no one's really talking about him. I think not until this off season that people finally notice. You know, like in like top ten free agents list that you see every website do. Is he finally starting to show up at linebacker? Um, I think he'll get some looks. I think the Raiders will keep him. Um, and then Nelson Aguilar is interesting because. I don't know if I want him to be the true number one. I don't know if he's a true number one receiver, although he played great this season for, you know, just kind of a one season. Um, But at the same time, there's so many wide receivers in free agency, depending on which mock draft you're looking at six, seven, eight wide receivers can go in the very first round, just in round number one. And you add that to all the free agent receivers. It is a buyer's market for wide receivers. So I don't know if Nelson Aguilar is going to get a $12, $14 million offer from anybody. I think we might be able to get him for for less than 10 just because of how the situation is. So um, honestly, for the Raiders, it's the perfect opportunity for them to keep to keep Nelson Aguilar. Um, you saw in Vic Tafer's interview for The Athletic how kind of like the, the leader that he is and after the Dolphins' loss, how he was the one that was loud. Derek Carr is a great leader, but he's a quiet, motivational-type leader. Nelson Aguilar could be the guy on the flip side, the raw, raw, grab-your-face mask, yell in your face, like get-your-act-together-type leader um, that, that the Raiders need. I think we can get him hopefully for under 10. So let's double back and have you answer my question because I like your breakdown okay. of both. If they get high-end offers – and say the Raiders are right there with an offer, would you return to the Raiders? And I'm basing this on, you just mentioned it, the fact that Aguilar was pissed at the end of the season, and it sounds like Morrow was one of those character guys trying to get more accountability. As you look at the Raiders, and you're both of those dudes, and you have a chance to go somewhere else and maybe win at a higher level, what do you do? I think Aguilar will go to the highest bidder, but I don't think he'll get a drastic contract bigger than the Raiders, especially with, um, like, look, like, if anything, Nelson Aguilar owes Derek Carr a fruit basket. Like, he was, we picked him up off the scrap heap, a <laughs> million bucks. He just one season with, with Derek Carr, and bam, he's, you know, he's eight touchdowns and this deep threat again. Um, you know, he goes, you know, he's, he's Nelly never dropped now. So I think Nelson Aguilar kind of knows what he got in Vegas. Um, I, I think if I think we'll be able to offer something competitive for him, Nicholas Morrow, if he gets a big deal somewhere else, he's gone. Yeah, I, I think he's out of there because he's been so underappreciated for so long. Uh, and he was kind of similar to Nelson Aguilar, where this season people finally started to pay attention to him. Not the same way you do a wide receiver who's, you know, picking up 50 yard touchdowns, but he played solid this season. And, you know, defensive coaches are paying attention and he's felt so undervalued for so long. He's like, all right, this is this is my chance to finally cash in. He does the Autumn Windbags podcast. It's RJ Clifford. Where can we find the podcast? 
everywhere. Uh, Apple, Spotify, you name it, it's there. We got a YouTube channel as well. Have you guys started thinking about what you're going to do in the fall? Can you make it here four games? And actually, I'll ask you this. What do you think Davis does if our capacity is only at like 60%? Because he was the one last year, Mark Davis, who was like, it's all or nothing. Yeah, he's uh, he's kind of like Dana White like that. Like they're both like not going to do half-filled venues. They're just like ready to go. So now like with Texas opening Dana White it's like Dana White's like, "Yeah, two weeks we'll go to Texas do do 15,000." It's like, "Uh, okay. What whatever you say. We'll see how that goes." Uh yeah, I think I think Mark Davis will just simply comply with whatever they whatever the state and city rules are. Right. I mean, as he as he started to see it, it did suck. Cause I do understand what he's saying. It's like yeah. you want that very first season like you saw Raider tickets were the highest price on the secondary market because, you know, brand new stadium, brand new city. Like, it makes perfect sense. Um, and also, you got all those casinos that are just going to be dumping tons of money into those tickets for high rollers and stuff like that. I think Mark Davis looked at all that money and said, like, Ugh, some of these other teams are letting, you know, third capacity, let people trickle in. I think he's trying to keep the, like, first season buzz alive to keep the prices what they were. So if there was, like, a trickle in – and it was kind of like this soft launch. It doesn't do a lot. But if he can say, like, all right, 2021 is the true first season of the Raiders at Allegiant Stadium, he might be able to get the ticket prices that he wants. RJ, good job. We'll talk to you. Next time, Steve. Thanks. There he is, RJ Clifford, the fight expert from SiriusXM. And you can hear his Raiders podcast, the Autumn Windbags on all podcast providers. Three o'clock hours on the way. We'll get to the uh, big news of the weekend in the NBA. Yeah, there was the All-Star game, but my Nets... And another aged superstar in Blake Griffin. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co.